Welcome to the Living the Word Bible Podcast, where I talk with other women about the Bible, what we love about it, how we read and understand it, and the difference it makes in our lives. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, General Editor of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, and also author of the book, Becoming Women of the Word. Today, I'm talking with my good friend, fellow scripture lover, Gail Summers, about the rich tradition of feminine prayer that runs throughout the Bible, and also the really practical help that these women's stories give us today. Gail, I am so glad that you're here. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Sarah. Now, you and Gary live in Phoenix, Arizona. Why don't you tell us what you do there for the church? Well, mostly now I'm a grandmother, so I don't do that at church. I do that at home. My daughter and her husband live just up the road from us, and they have five children, five young children. So I spend a lot of time helping them. I don't officially do anything at the church anymore except to lecture. But for many years, I led a a women's Bible study at the church, and I also taught in the, the, the Institute of Catholic Theology that was that is in our church. We have that in our church. So I taught courses there primarily in scripture in that. So my my public teaching days seem to be over, but my grandmother days are filling my life with a lot of joy and delight. So So I know scripture has been very important to you for a long time. Can you tell us when did you first start reading the Bible and why? Well, Sarah, I don't know that if you know this about me. You do know a lot about me, but I don't know if you know that my conversion when I was 18 actually came through reading the scripture. I was mm-hmm. unchurched. We didn't go to church. And when I was 18, uh, there was a, a comment that John Lennon of the Beatles made about the, the Beatles <laughs> being more popular than Jesus. And I was a big Beatles fan, big, big Beatles fan. And when he, I heard those words, just those words, that the Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ, even though I didn't, really didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, other than there was a figure called Jesus Christ, I was cut to the quick of my soul, cut to the quick. And all I could think about was I need to get myself to church. I need to find out about God. And so I wound up going to church with a friend, which made sense, a Presbyterian church. And she gave me a Bible. I didn't have a Bible. So she gave me a Billy Graham Bible. And the Billy Graham Bible said, if you don't know anything about the Bible, which I didn't, you could start in the Gospel of John, which I did. Now, I was a reader. I have always been a reader all my life. So I went to the Gospel of John. I got through about 10 chapters, and that was it. That was it for me. All I wanted to do was become a Christian. And so I, I invited Jesus to come into my life. I gave him myself. I, I wow. had a dramatic conversion, and I could not put the Bible down. I could not put the Bible down. I read it and read it and read it everywhere I went. I took it to work everywhere. I ate it up. And honestly, you know, that's characterized my life, my whole life, all of these years from the time I was 18. And I'm 74 now. So it's a long time of loving scripture and reading scripture and um, savoring scripture and knowing the Lord in, in the scripture. Yeah. 
So I don't think I've ever before heard John Lennon and the Gospel of John referred to. I know. I don't think think there are many people who can trace their their conversions directly back to to John Lennon's comment. And, you know, it it caused such an uproar, a cultural uproar against the Beatles in this country anyway. But for me, it was the beginning of my conversion, which just goes to show we should never just discount what people say, whatever That's their right. motive might be. You never know how the Lord is going to use some little thing. <laughs> I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't searching for God. I wasn't thinking about God. I was just living my little 18-year-old life and listening to Beatles music. And that was but that was my moment and my life yeah, completely God changed. was looking for you. Yes, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. So I know more about you in your life after you became Catholic. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your view of Scripture changed with those new Catholic eyes that you had. Well, you know, the best way to sum it up for me is to say that everything that was good in my life about Scripture got better. Everything that was good got better. And if I had to pick out, and it's hard to pick out actually all that happened because a lot happened. But I would say, first of all, the magisterium, the the, the charism of the magisterium, the infallible teaching authority of the church, that that exists has always held me in its thrall, that we actually have a church where we can know the truth. We don't have to keep inventing mm-hmm. it over and over again. That was the, the magisterial charism provided a, a foundation for studying scripture because so much of our study of scripture as Protestants depending on, depended on who we were following and who we were listening to and whose books we were reading. Mm-hmm. Whereas the church is a completely different landscape starting from dot and carrying through consistently all the way up to today. So that was number one. The other I would have, I would say it was the typology in the Old Testament. You know, as a, a Protestant, my idea about the Old Testament was that it was leading up to something, was leading up to Jesus, the incarnation. And then when Jesus appeared, everything before it just sort of became just everything before it. And every, what really mattered now is Jesus and who, where we are now with Jesus. The Catholic view of scripture is much more typological, which means much more unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's not like everything that went before ended when Jesus came. It's like everything that went before was fulfilled when Jesus came. So fulfilled means it was, it becomes what it was always meant to be. It mm-hmm. becomes what it was always meant to be. Just like when we make an order from Amazon and the Amazon order is fulfilled, it doesn't mean the end of what we've ordered. It means the <laughs> beginning of what we've ordered. I love that. And then the, the reality of what it is that we were waiting for when we ordered it. To me, that's the fulfillment. And that's what the church gave me that that just wasn't there before, the the unity of Scripture. And then, of course, the fact that I didn't know in my Protestant life that Scripture is one part of God's communication with us. 
I knew it mm-hmm. as God's communication with us. No question about that part. But it was, it's one part. It leads to the next part, which would be the Eucharist. It's like a, a marriage relationship. So in a marriage, there's a verbal and a nonverbal communication. Words are the verbal and the nonverbal is the, the marital embrace. Well, in Catholic life, the scripture is the verbal communication that God has with us. I mean, the, the church describes the Bible as a conversation, a loving conversation that God has with his children. So that's the verbal component. And then the Eucharist is bodies meeting bodies, a marital is nuptial. And so scripture, we need to know that that about scripture, that it leads to something additional. It's not just a standalone thing. You can't even get to the Eucharist without, you know, the table of the word. So those are big. I mean, I think those are really big. I could go on, but I won't because we have other things to talk about. <laughs> but you, you know that as a convert, that things really do change about scripture when you become Catholic. They do. And one thing I really appreciated about you in my early convert days was all the things I learned about how we study scripture as Catholics. Mm -hmm. And you and I began working together to Mm -hmm. write Bible studies for women because both of us had this burning desire to invite Catholic women into scripture in a new way. And I wondered if you wanted to just briefly talk about some of the challenges we faced at that point. Yes, yeah. Yes, I could. I remember them quite well. And because you know, when I began teaching the scripture, reluctantly, I had been a convert for maybe one year. And we moved from Massachusetts, where, the, where our conversion happened, to Arizona. And we went to a lovely church. Uh, and there were lovely, wonderful Catholic people, really alive Catholic people there. And they found out about my background. And so there was some, there was a little group of ladies and they said, well, would you do a Bible study for us? Cause we'd love to do a Bible study, but nobody does Bible studies. And so I said, well, I've only been a Catholic for a year. So I just don't think I'm in a position to do this. And so, you know, they just kept insisting, look, look, you know more than we do. So at least just let us know what you know and we'll just go from there. So I said, okay, okay, fine. And so, in a huge mistake. I mean, the, I just, I have such a memory of these little ladies who were just so attentive and so thankful to have somebody teach the scripture that I decided the thing we really need to study, you know, ladies, is the, the epistle to the Galatians, which is really <laughs> one of the hardest epistles in the New Testament. It is a very hard epistle. It yeah. never occurred to me. It never occurred to me. Oh, let's do the the epistle to the Galatians. And if they want, they wanted to know why. I said, well, you know, because that was such a key part of the Reformation. And I'm interested in just getting into the bones of it all and the meat of it all. Mm -hmm. So it was really more for me than for them. But they hung in there. They hung in there. And over time, through lots of mistakes, I realized I had to slow (laughs) way down slow way down and find out what do these people actually know? And it turned out to be very little. It turned out to be very little. They were just unfamiliar with the characters, the history, the language, the terminology of the scripture. And so I had to just kind of reorganize my approach to teaching scripture and start with the basics. That's when I started to do Genesis. I thought, well, you know, the church, Mm -hmm. the Catholic church begins at the beginning. 
So I'm going to beginning at the beginning. I'm going to do Genesis. And I hadn't actually studied Genesis as a Catholic, but it turned my life upside down. It turned, I've never been the same, never been the same. So I learned a lot. They learned a lot. You know, I learned that Catholics, I, I guess I think it really was in the teaching of scripture to Catholics that I realized that my approach to scripture was often for information. And the Catholic approach is for transformation, mm-hmm. not information, but transformation. We have transformation. that Lexio Divina in the practice of the Lexio Divina. It's not material to be mastered. If anything, it's, we are mastered by the material. We don't turn the material. We don't turn scripture into bullet points. Scripture is a person, a person. It's the scripture is Jesus himself who is the mm-hmm. one word of scripture. And I think the gesture that, that represents that truth best for me is when uh, the scripture gets incensed at mass. You know, the, the scripture mm-hmm. is on the ambo, ambo and uh, the censor is passed all around the scripture, acknowledging that, you know, this is Jesus here. This is Jesus' word. We reverence the scripture. It's not a book of information. It's not a textbook. It's a conversation. And so the ladies learned a lot about how to read scripture. I learned a lot about how to read scripture as a Catholic. It took years. It took (laughs) a long time. Well, your love for scripture and the way that reading it is a conversation for you with the Lord that really shines in the series that you wrote for the Women's Bible. You wrote a beautiful series, eight meditations, I think, on women who pray in scripture, Mm -hmm. starting with Eve, working all the way through to Mary, Mm -hmm. talking about those women who pray Mm -hmm. and what we can learn from them. And I wonder... Gail, can you tell us why did you think that that was so important? You know, what drew you to these women and to write about their prayers? Well, actually, those little essays came out of quite a bit of work that I had done with women praying in in the Old Testament. They originally started as talks. Someone invited me to speak at a a retreat, a women's retreat. And I was trying to figure out what to do. All I know is scripture. That's really all I know. So I wanted to think, well, what can I talk about scripture? And some of these ladies would not maybe have had the benefit of doing much scripture study, but all Catholic ladies are interested in praying. Prayer is a big thing in Catholic life. Mm -hmm. And so what about doing prayer with the Old Testament women? And so I put together a series of talks on that topic and it went well. I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I learned so much while I was doing that work. So I did it a couple of times, a couple of different retreats. And then during the COVID year, when the church was shut down, my daughter, Geneva, had been in an endowed group and she missed the fellowship of the women being together. They didn't do Bible study, but they were together talking about good stuff. And so I, one day, just off the top of my head, I don't even know why I'd said it now, but I said to her, well, you know, I, I think I could put together a Bible study that we could do here. And she thought that was a great idea. And I said, I, we, I could do, how about praying with the women of the Old Testament? Because I had already done the material, praying with the women of the Old Testament. And so she said, yeah, let's do it. And we did. And the response was so wonderful. I mean, it was just so wonderful. 
So the essays now have come out of that long experience of being with women and looking at Old Testament women. They had no idea about a lot of the lives of these women. They didn't know very much about them other than the obvious ones. And they didn't know that they prayed. And they didn't really know much about how they prayed. Yeah. Not so, many people think about that, I don't think. Yeah, we don't, we don't usually because the women of the Old Testament are some they're kind of minor players. You know, they're minor players. They're not the big movers of the story mm-hmm. for the most part. And that's their beauty. That to me is their beauty. That's mm-hmm. the, oh, I don't know. It's like the secret magic of Narnia. You know, the women. <laughs> the, it's the women who have small parts, you know, sometimes they're, they're not even named, but they're in that story in just the right proportion to where they need to be. And studying their prayers just gives us some insight into who they were, how God used them. And then leading up to, of course, you know, Mary, the, the mission, the woman, mm-hmm. the quiet, simple, humble woman who would stand at the center of the great drama of our redemption. It's beautiful. It's irresistible. (laughs) And the fact that they pray (laughs) means they are having a conversation with God. And we're getting an insight into their relationship with God, into their Mm -hmm. faith in God. Mm -hmm. And there are so many, many things that we can learn from that. Mm-hmm. And I know you could talk for hours, but what are a couple of maybe the biggest aha moments or things that you've learned from these women? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, and this struck me very sharply, actually, when I started to read their prayers, that first of all, they, those women spent more time extolling God's character and his deeds, his goodness, how he has revealed himself in salvation history much more time on him than on themselves, their feelings, their needs, their problems. It's not that they didn't mention them, but it was the, the greater proportion was always on the God side. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, especially in our culture, where we, I think we are always struggling against self-centeredness, to see that these women started their prayer about God, to God, about God, and then worked their way into wherever they needed to be was therapeutic. It was actually therapeutic Mm. for me. I had to think a long time about why they do that. And of course, Mary does the same thing in the Magnificat. How much? Think about Mm -hmm. how much time she talks about herself, the lowly servant, and how much time she talks about what God has done in history. You know, that's, there's a lesson there. There is a lesson there, and it's it's not like that for uh, no reason. It's not accidental. It, it's very important in prayer to make sure that the proportionality is right, that God is big and good and wise mm-hmm. and loving, and we are dependent on Him. We need Him. So that's number one. Number two is, I would say, the, the use of the feminine voice, the use of the feminine voice, the all throughout these women's stories, their voices rise up in prayer, sometimes singing their prayer, very often singing their prayer, not always, but their voices rise up in prayer and, and their beautiful prayers, praising God. And it, it helped me to think a little bit about the use of the feminine voice. How do we use our feminine voices? 
And the fact that so many of them did sing, I'm not talking about actually we have to sing songs, but the fact that so many of them did sing made me think that the feminine voice is particularly attuned to to praising God in a way that elevates everybody around her. And mm. that got my attention because I'm, I was thinking how many times I abuse my feminine voice. So rather than being, you know, the presence of uh, God and God's goodness in my family, my voice can be the presence of criticism, judgment, bullying, complaining, whining. There's an abuse and there's an, a good use. And the women of the Old Testament really help us to see of the good use. And then finally, the humility. I, I, I already talked about this a little bit. All of them, no matter what their situations were, and they were very different, very different, but all of them were humble women, very much aware of their smallness, their neediness, their weakness, their lowliness, but they weren't ashamed of it. They weren't ashamed mm. of it. In fact, they were confident that that their their lowliness was no impediment to working with God to do what he wanted them to do, which is another very good thing for us women to remember. Because I think many of us, including myself, we're I'm much more aware of my weakness and my lowliness and my dependency on God than any great thing that I might do in life. I'm much more aware. And He's God is looking for people like us. He's actually mm -hmm. got his eye on people like us. One thing too that I want to mention that I, I probably should mention, because this was a big lesson for me too, is that when the women are praising God's character, I saw them standing in a great long line after Eve. You know, Eve was deceived by a lie about God's character. Mm -hmm. The serpent told her that God had lied to them. He couldn't be trusted. He didn't have their best interests at heart. And she fell for it. But ever since Eve, when we look at the women who prayed in the Old Testament, they're stepping up and they're contradicting that lie. They're contradicting that lie. They are bearing testimony to the goodness of God. And to me, that's mm -hmm. really very important. Our first mother fell victim to a lie about God's character and part of our job in prayer is to make sure that we always remember how good he is, how wise he is, how much we can trust him so that we are beautiful countering the work of the devil. That is a wonderful point about them. And so, Gail, so mm -hmm. many wonderful things that you learned about these women in their prayers. Mm -hmm. Do they ever touch your life personally? Is there an example you could share when it's really given you strength? Yes, as a matter of fact. Now, I, I should say that all of them touched me personally whenever I was studying the, the individual woman. She always had something to say to me. But I think that the, the deepest connection that I had was in the story of Eve, interestingly enough, in the very first mm. story of Eve, whom we often think of as the one who got us into trouble. And there's much more to Eve than that. Way, way, way more. For me, I saw that Eve, in one fell swoop, lost her son, Abel. Cain killed Abel. And Abel had been 
you know, the righteous one. Abel had been the one who took his relationship with God to heart and Cain killed him. And then Cain had to be sent away and she, she would never see him again. So in one fell swoop, Eve lost both sons, both sons. Now, in my personal life, about four and a half years ago, we lost our son who was 33. He was uh, Gary was his name. And he had had a long struggle with drugs in his life, a great long battle with drugs. And in the end, he, he overdosed accidentally. And uh, although ironically, he was in the midst of a very good recovery, a very good time of sobriety. And we were also very hopeful for Gary. It was such a good time. We had a good six months of sobriety. But one night, the darkness closed in and Gary took a drug. And unfortunately, it was laced with fentanyl, which is, a, as most people now know, a very, very deadly drug. And he, and he died on the spot. Uh, so we experienced the sort of shock that can, can really not be described. Now, so many people said to us, there are no words. And that is very true. There are no words to describe the horror and the shock and the pain that our family experienced when we found out that Gary, our dear beloved son, whom we all adored, died. It was a very, very hard thing. So when I see that Eve, who lost both sons in one fell swoop, when I looked at that, my first question was, well, what? how might she have reacted to this? If she finds out that this is the sort of world now outside of the garden, this is life outside of the garden, bad mm -hmm. things can happen to good people. Now, this is what you've got to look forward to. How would she have felt? What might she have reacted? How might she have reacted? She could have said, that's it. I'm not having any more children. If this is the way it is in God's creation, forget it. I'm not having any more kids. I'm never letting Adam touch me again. That's not what Eve did. Eve had another son. And when she had the son, Seth, she said, God has given me another son to fill the void. She starts out with acknowledging that God has given her a gift. She said God had given her Cain. He was a gift to her. But after Abel is killed, then Cain has to leave and she has nothing. She gets another son and she says, God has given me another son. She's, she could see the personal goodness of God in her life even though she had to be devastated. What mother could live through that sort of pain? Even losing one child feels like you, mm -hmm. you're going to die yourself. But to lose two children that way and still be able to see the goodness of God in his loving hand in her life, that was big, Sarah. That was very mm -hmm. big for me. I've never forgotten it. So for people who think that there's, you know, no, no way that we can relate to women who lived a long time ago in a different world, in a different place, that's not true. These women speak and they speak strongly and deeply. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, that's very meaningful to me with loss in my own life of my husband. Yes, um, exactly. But as you were talking, I couldn't help thinking of another mother many mm. years later, Mary. Mm. Losing her son mm -hmm. in such a terrible way. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Magnificat is ahead of that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we believe she continues to pray that afterward. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have mm -hmm. any thoughts about how they relate 
Mary being kind of a new Eve in that situation? Oh, well, you know, at the time when Gary died, and that was actually before I had done a lot of study on the Old Testament women, but at the time when Gary died, I did start to think about Mary watching. Now, see, I didn't have to watch Gary die. He, he was in his apartment, and he, we found out that he died. But I didn't have to watch him be tortured and, and killed an innocent person. I didn't have to watch that. She did. She had to watch that. And she never, she never cried out. She never cried out and said, no, this is too much. No, this is not supposed to happen to you. No, I know you can get yourself down off that cross. This was not to be your future. This is not to be my future. This can't possibly be. There's so much that we would say. I remember when I got the news that Gary died, I fell down on the floor. I, I fell mm-hmm. down on the floor and I was, you know, it was kind of not, I wasn't screaming, but it was a sort of high pitched keening that came out of me. It was very, very, very dramatic and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Mary stood stock still and quiet, stock still and quiet. And she, like Eve, got another son. She got another son yeah. to fill this so that she would always be a mother. She did not lose her vocation of mother, which is mm-hmm. the, to me, you know, one of the highest vocations for women is to be a mother. So the, the connection between Eve and Mary is strong, not just theologically. You know, it's it, yeah. you can make a wonderful theological case for how Mary's the new Eve, but in the visceral reality of what they lived, what she, Eve lived through, and what Mary lived through, there's a there's a heart to heart connection there, mm-hmm. I think. and to us too, those of us who suffer that way. So thinking more of Mary and mm-hmm. thinking about her Magnificat, since we're speaking mm-hmm. about prayer. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI called that prayer a portrait of Mary's soul. Right. And I wonder if you have any comments on that. Well, I have. I can't tell you how many times I've used that quote in scripture classes, not just about old, the Old Testament women, but in the scripture classes that I've taught. I always start out by talking about well, what, what does the church tell us should be our relationship with scripture? And this quote, in my mind, is perfect. And I have it here too. I'm taking a look at it right now. The Magnificat, a portrait of Mary's soul, is entirely woven from the threads of Holy Scripture. Here we see how completely at home Mary is with the Word of God, with what ease she moves in and out of it. She speaks and thinks with the Word of God, and the Word of God becomes her Word. Her Word issues Mm. from the Word of God. I don't know, maybe you do, Sarah, but I don't know of any description of the Catholic relationship to scripture that beats that one. It's just perfect. She, it's Mary, beautiful. You know, and it taught me that Mary was saturated with these stories, so saturated mm-hmm. that when she prays, the words of scripture come right out of her, out of her heart, out of her mind. She's speaking the words of scripture. So much of what she says in that prayer is lifted out of prayers and psalms from the Old Testament. She mm-hmm. knew that material really, really well. And so, you know, that led me to wonder whether whether Jesus, in the time between the finding of the boy Jesus in the temple when he was 12 and his mm-hmm. public ministry when he was 30, you know, there was, what, 18, 18 years there, right? About 18 years. I think that 
from beginning at the finding of the boy Jesus in the temple, Mary's relationship with Jesus changed, began to change. And mm-hmm. I believe, I really believe a good case can be made that Jesus used the stories of those women to prepare her for her mission. So she mm. grew, just like he used those stories of the men in the Old Testament to help the Jews understand who he was. And he mm-hmm. constantly lived his life out of the scripture. I mean, it was, on the cross, he's dying, he's quoting scripture. That's Jesus. And that, to me, is what Mary is as well. She was very possibly formed by Jesus in the stories, which really underscores the fact that you can't understand Mary if you just start in the New Testament, which is, I think, what was a stumbling block for us as Protestants. We did start mm-hmm. in the New Testament. And uh, it's hard to understand Mary if you don't start in Genesis with Eve. When you do, and you go all the way through the Old Testament, you see how there's always been a feminine presence there and all the stories that give little pictures, as, as you have written in your book, little, little tiles in the icon of, of the mother mm-hmm. that God promised in Genesis 3, when he said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. So he's speaking to the serpent, a woman, a mother warrior is on the way. A mother warrior is going to appear in human history at some point, and she's going to be part of the definitive battle against the serpent. You know, the Magnificat is is a picture of the Old Testament formed Mary and those stories. I've spent so much time thinking about how those stories at certain points in her life, did she think about the stories? Did she hear mm-hmm. those voices of the women? Did she? Did she, she must have. So it's interesting that you you bring up that promise and the the curse that God gave yes. on the serpent. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Irenaeus said, you know, Mary undid the knot mm-hmm. of Eve's disobedience. Right. So something I've heard you point out before, Eve was not conceived in original sin. You know, both of these women, Eve and Mary, are right. full of grace. Right. So mm-hmm. why did one fail and one didn't? How? Yes. What made the difference? Yes, and I... As you know, I've thought a lot about that as well. Both of them were full of grace and both were free. They both had to make a free Mm -hmm. choice and and had to be free. So Eve chose poorly and Mary chose well. What did Mary have? What did Eve have that Mary didn't have? Well, Eve is the only woman who saw the garden before the fall. Directly from God's hands, she saw the Mm-hmm. And she walked with God. She and Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. The communion that Adam and Eve had before the fall is the type of communion that we, we won't have again until heaven. So that's a lot that Eve had. But what did Mary have that Eve didn't have? Mary, when she was faced with her choice, Mary had all of those stories from the Old Testament. <laughs> Eve had no examples. You had no examples of other women faced with difficult decisions and how they chose well, but Mary did. So that's a big thing, I think. You know, that's a, because it means that for us, that advantage of Mary is ours as well. We have all the, those scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, and all the saints as well. We have examples, flesh and blood examples of people who 
were faced with difficult choices to make and chose well, and God was on their side. And that, that I believe, enabled Mary to choose, yes, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me. I love that thought. Thank you. And I hope that that's encouragement to everybody to be reading these stories of the women and sitting with them and getting to know them and praying with them. Exactly. Yeah. So I wonder if before we go, you could just Mm -hmm. share one of those prayers from Mm -hmm. the women that Mm -hmm. we could then, I'll turn around and pray it with the women who are listening. Sure. You have a favorite one. Yeah, I do. I have to say that Judith is among my favorites, uh, maybe my favorite woman in the Old Testament, her story. Her story really should be turned into a movie. I don't know if it ever has been turned into a movie. It should be. <laughs> it should be. Yeah, it should be. So this is one of the many prayers that we get in the book of Judith. It's from Judith chapter 9. Then Judith fell upon her face and put ashes on her head and cried out to the Lord with a loud voice, O God, my God, hear me also, a widow, for your power depends not upon numbers, nor upon men of strength, for you are God of the lowly, helper of the oppressed, upholder of the weak, protector of the forlorn, savior of those without hope. And I think she speaks for so many of the women of the Old Testament in this prayer. She knows that our lowliness is not any kind of obstacle to God doing a great work through us. Amen. Amen. I think she speaks for a lot of us as well. Mm -hmm. And I would like to use that scripture right now and just Mm -hmm. pray it with everybody who's listening. Mm -hmm. If you are listening, maybe just close your eyes and allow the word to speak to your heart as I read it. And put yourself in the scene. You may not be a warrior in the same way that Judith is, and your town may not be under siege, but maybe you're in desperate need in some way. Or maybe you know somebody else who's in desperate need, and you would want to pray this on their behalf. So let's pray her prayer. And come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Then Judith fell upon her face and put ashes on her head and uncovered the sackcloth she was wearing and cried out to the Lord with a loud voice. What is your posture before God when you pray? Abandon yourself to Him. Don't be afraid to cry out from your heart as Judith did. O God, my God, hear me also, a widow. In those days, widows were among the most vulnerable of people. Are you vulnerable? Do you feel weak? Don't be ashamed of that. You know, God knows you and loves you as you are. And he's not tied down to your limitations or to those of others that you might turn to for help. Continue with her prayer. For your power depends not upon numbers, nor upon men of strength. For you are God of the lowly, helper of the oppressed, upholder of the weak, protector of the forlorn, savior of those without hope. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Judith's strong witness. Give us her confidence that our weakness doesn't matter where you're concerned. Listen to our prayers 
and help us put our trust in you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, amen. All you holy women of scripture, pray for us. You know, by the way, Gail, there is a beautiful litany of women of the word at the back of the women's Bible to help us to call on our sisters in faith as we read their stories and are inspired by them. So, Gail, thank you so much for talking with us today, for your wonderful insights into feminine prayer, but also just for sharing your heart for scripture. It is so evident. And I pray that God will continue to bless your ministry, both with those grandchildren and all of those who write, who you write for. Uh, speaking for that, you have a beautiful set of reflections on all of the Sunday gospel readings that I don't think we mentioned before. Do you want to tell people where they can find those reflections? Yes, it's a, a website called Core Artems, which is a, a difficult name for a website. It's C-O-R-A-R-D-E-N-S dot com. Core Artems. It means burning hearts in Latin. And I post there commentary on the Sunday lectionary readings, all, all of them, all four of them, uh, in all the three years of the lectionary. So that's one place that I actually still am doing a little bit of teaching in those, the things that I've written there. And Gail, you do a wonderful job of drawing the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then as we make our response with the psalm. So thank you for that. It is a real gift. Yeah, you're welcome. I, it, it came to me when I was st first studying scripture that the, there is a relationship among all of the readings. They're not random. And it's important for Catholics to understand the relationship, even for uh, a, a reading, sometimes the epistle, we can't figure out well, how, well, how does this epistle have to, anything to do with the gospel. But it, it just takes a little bit of time and sitting still and following where the gospel leads that we can see the connection and that's i try very hard to do that in all of those commentaries that scripture is a unity it's all speaking one word and that word is jesus the person jesus so it's not all broken up in little bits and it's not random it makes perfect Amen. sense thank you sarah this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been Living the Word Bible Podcast. Join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. You can also join our Instagram community at Living the Word Bible. May God richly bless you as you read His Word. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.